0: We are going to finish up Exodus 32 this morning and start into Exodus 33. Um, oh, I need to send this around. If you're not on here, just sign on the back and we'll get that taken care of next time. Let's try and snake that around. Um, we actually are very close to the end of Exodus. So as always, when we get close to the end of a book, I know it seems like there's a lot to go, but as I mentioned, a lot of it's a repeat of what we talked about. It's the tabernacle, building of it instead of design of it. And I don't know if I'm that good to teach through the tabernacle twice. <laughs> I, I know it's in there, but it's really gonna be the same basic material. So at the end of chapter 34, we have a little bit left to do after that. And then we, um, we're gonna go into some other uh, book. So I always open it up to suggestions. Um, Adrian really wanted revelation I still don't think I'm ready for that so um, if you have some book that you want to do preferably New Testament it could be Old Testament as well uh, that's what we would do next so keep that in mind that'll be changing here in a few weeks uh, chapter 32 of Exodus is the chapter where the people sin we know that those of you who have been here the golden calf they make the golden calf worship the golden calf God's response is uh, anger And wrath and the decision to destroy them. Moses then takes on and becomes what really is Moses's finest hour in the scripture because he becomes a true mediator and he represents the people to God and he represents God to the people and he intercedes and he intercedes based on the promises of God. God you made promises. You made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and your character is such that this is not what you would do, and it's going to cause the nations to have a wrong opinion of you. Please relent, and God relents. Then Moses flips his hat around from representing Israel to representing God, and he goes down the mountain, and he crushes the golden calf and grinds it to powder and makes them drink it, and he confronts Aaron, and Deuteronomy tells us that God wanted to kill Aaron, So he intercedes for Aaron and and holds that judgment back as well, and then he calls um, who is on the Lord's side, the Levites come to him, 3,000 men are killed or 3,000 people, and then there's a plague that spreads out among the people, and we talked about that a little bit last week. There's one thing that we didn't cover, and that was his last, his second intercession for the people. Um, And I have to confess that I misrepresented that. I read through it and I I didn't study it, I just read through the passage through the end of Exodus. I had said that Moses wants to substitute himself for the people, that is not what happens. Um, So I was wrong on that and I apologize. Um, That's not not good to have done that, but I have said that so we have to correct that. What he actually does is he says, Um, If you are going to blot the people out, blot me out too. In other words, he doesn't say take me in place of the people. He just says I'm going to identify with the people. If you're going to blot the people out of your book of life, blot me out also. So I want to read that section. But the real part that I want to deal with is the first part of chapter 33 because there is a pretty serious consequence that comes because of their sin and it's gonna lead to the next intercession of Moses, which we'll get to next week. Um, Moses realizes that even though God has withdrawn his promise to destroy the people, that things are not right between God and the people. In fact, this chapter reminds me a lot of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sin, right? They sin and there's the promise that they will die. And we do know that they die, they die spiritually. Sin always separates us from God. And, and they, are, they die physically, but quite a bit later. But the main problem with that sin is the separation from God, right? There's something now between man and God. And so they are thrown out of the garden and you have the two cherubim there, right, with flaming swords to keep them from going back into the garden. And something like that is happening here. Moses says, okay, you're not going to kill us, but we still have unforgiven sin, and we have to make that sin right. And so Moses is going to go and see if he can't get God to, um, if he can't make atonement for the sin somehow. And we'll pick it up there in verse 30. We'll read in the end of the chapter, and then we're going to look at chapter 33 after that. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out um, of the book, of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So Moses approaches God about the people's sin. And by the way, there's something to learn from that. He does not come with excuses. No excuse here. He says the people have sinned a great sin. He actually names the sin, right? They built a golden calf and they worshiped it. Um, Unlike Aaron who was trying to deflect blame, Moses accepts the full, this is what happened. Uh, By the way, that's the lesson for us as well, right? (laughs) When when you confess sins, don't make excuses for it. Uh, Our excuses sound like Aaron's excuse about making the golden calf. We mentioned that last week. Your excuses are hollow. The issue is that we've sinned, and if we sinned, we come to God and we confess our sins and He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Praise the Lord that we have that promise. Moses doesn't have that promise. He comes to God, and it's really interesting to me in verse 32, it's like he starts to ask God to forgive their sins and then realizes he has no reason for doing so. Did you catch it? The sentence, he doesn't even finish his sentence. He says, but now, if you will forgive their sin, and then in my Bible, there's a dash. Some Bibles, there's dot, dot, dot. It's like, what do I say now? (laughs) What, what, can I, what can I offer to cause God to do this? What is going to bring him to forgive their sin? And Moses has no answer for that. But now, if you will forgive their sin, I don't have anything else to say. So then he says, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, I'm going to confess, when I read that, it actually, that really bothers me that Moses would identify with his people before he would identify with God. Um, I, I, that, it bothers me because, we're gonna talk about this at the end, the highest goal is always to know God. To, 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 uh, th- there should be nothing between our loyalty to God. Your clan, your family, you know, our loyalty to Grace Church, our loyalty to the United States, our loyalty to um, some organization, those pale in comparison to, to our desire to know God. And it almost seems like Moses is saying, no, God, I'd rather be with my people and be wiped out, out of your presence, than to, to ha- be with you. Um, so that's an issue that we have to, we have to deal. Everyone understand what I'm, what I'm getting at. He says it, but he's identifying with the people. Here's my. Uh, go ahead, Alex. And, and that could be a very very likely could be because it doesn't tell us why he does that so it could be he's saying hey i'm the leader of this people and the captain goes down with the ship so that very possible greg
1: in the old testament god's promises were to the whole nation and in the new testament they're individual promises and so he was part of that nation so that was he was going to accept whatever they did
0: okay Very good. So he says, God, let it fall on me as well. Rod?
1: Um, My thought was that going back to the earlier part where he represented the people people to God saying, you know, don't don't take them out. And God says, I'll take everybody (coughs) out. But you, yeah. But you, I'll start a new nation from. And there might be an emphasis to God saying, God, I really don't believe that you should wipe this people out and ruin your response. If you're going to do that, you might as well start completely new with somebody else
0: other than me. Yeah. Although he's not saying he's going to wipe them out physically, they're just blotted out of his book of life, right? In other words, they're blotted out of the book of life. Uh, he says, go, take the people, take them into the promised land, but they're going to be held responsible for that sin. So um, I, by the way, I don't know the answer either. I think what he is doing is, is bartering with God here. And the reason I say that is in the next chapter, it makes it very clear that Moses considers knowing God to be the highest good. And in the next chapter, we actually see two things. So go to chapter 33 with me real quick. And I'm not probably gonna leave this unresolved because the Bible doesn't answer the question. I'm just, to me, it's an important thing to answer. If you go down to verse 12, Moses uh, is talking to God and he says, Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You, yet you have said, I know your name. I know you by name and you also have found favor in my sight. At some point, this is not, uh, no, no reference we can find for this. At some point, God has actually said to Moses, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. And I think what Moses is doing is saying, God, I I know that I have found favor in your sight. Um, uh, Make it a package here, God. If you're gonna take the people, take me too. And and, uh, assuming that God is going to say, no, I won't do it then. Um, And the reason I say that I think Moses does have the attitude, I want to know God above all things. Look at what comes next. Verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Uh, Moses desires to know God. Moses desires to find favor in his sight. And I think what he's trying to do is set up a choice. God if you're going to take the people, you have to take me with them. Um, that's my explanation. Don't know if it's right or not. But I do know that God doesn't play along. <laughs> right? What's God's response? Oh, wait, go ahead. I, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, in the New Testament, it talks about whether, you know, I'm
2: to you talk to about whether or not words written in his
0: book. Yes. Psalm but I, I don't know if this is ever been mentioned before in the Old Testament. No, this is the first mention of the Book of Life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, This is the first mention of the book of life. It's not the last. It's mentioned several times in Psalms. It's mentioned in the epistles. And, of course, it's mentioned in Revelation. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, What we do know is that God doesn't play along with that. He he basically says, Moses, you're offering me a false choice. Everybody's responsible for their own sin. Everybody's responsible because that's what he says. He says, whoever in verse 33, has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go and lead the people. So that principle may have been a newer principle for them. Like uh, Greg was saying, in the Old Testament, oftentimes uh, sins were visited on families. Sins were visited upon, um, upon nations. But ultimately, God says, the sin falls upon the person who's committed. If you go to Ezekiel, Chapter nine. I think it's nine. No, eighteen. I'm glad I wrote that down. Ezekiel eighteen. Um, famous uh, chapter. The one who. The title for the whole chapter for my Bible is "The Soul Who Sins Shall Die," and it goes through and it talks about all these different scenarios. And it eventually talks about the father who sins, does that sin pass on to the son? What about a child who sins, does that sin uh, accrue to the father? And in verse uh, 19, it says, so this is Exodus 18, 19, yet you shall say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? We we would probably never say that, but that's a legitimate question then. Why, Why would you say that the son doesn't suffer for the iniquity of his father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sin that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. So uh, God is establishing a principle even here. The soul that sins will die. Uh, Ultimately, everyone in Israel, including Moses, is sinful. We know that. Everybody's going to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is going to be set up. Uh, You could make the decision right now that all these people are going to be cut off from God and blotted out of the book of life, but there's a system put in place for them to be restored to God. And first they need to repent, and then they need to follow what the law tells them to do in terms of the sacrifices. Um, But Moses is not going to be held responsible for those sins. Um, Now, one last thing, and there's an interesting passage there. It says... At the very end, nevertheless, this is in verse 34, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Um, God makes a promise to Moses. I'm gonna visit them and I'll visit their sin upon them. Uh, The rabbis actually had a statement that never was Israel judged for any sin, that there wasn't an ounce of the golden calf in it. That this is visited back upon them. Different people have different ideas of what that means, that God will visit their iniquity upon them when he visits. Um, the one that I saw that I, resonated with me was, remember when the people get to the promised land, they send the spies in, and 10 spies say bad report, two spies say good report, and they go with the bad report. And what happens? 40 years in the wilderness. But you see, I think part of that is the golden calf. I think God is visiting them and visiting this iniquity upon them. That, that it, isn't, it isn't just the fact that they said, we're not going into the promised land, they're, they're being held responsible even there. This entire generation dies in the wilderness. I mean, I, you stop and ponder that, it's an amazing thing. You were slaves your whole life, you leave with the promise of going to the promised land and you never get there, 40 years. And by the way, 40 years, there's some that are 20. I mean, this means everybody's dying off at a fairly young age. Um, there aren't uh, 80-year-old people walking around except for Moses and Joshua and, and um, Aaron. I mean, uh, and Caleb, Caleb, not Aaron, Caleb. Aaron doesn't make it either. So it's an interesting little passage to begin with, Rodden. those individuals who have no I do not I do not think that's true
1: why
0: because I think if they repented turned back to God um, that God can forgive their sins through the blood of Jesus Christ it doesn't mean the consequence of the sin is not taken they, they can still end up not going into the lamp but I think it would be a big jump personally to say that not one of those people made it uh, was was is, will be with God in heaven and in fact in the very next chapter and this is why I want to get to chapter 33 we are going to see the response of the people and it's actually an example to us so let's go on to chapter 33 I know that's I wanted to cover that because next we get to the result of this um, let's read chapter 33 down through verse 11 Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside of the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned away again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. All right. Um, God begins to speak to Moses about what's going to happen now. And you could call this good news, bad news. Did you catch all that God is going to do for the people? I mean, it's pretty amazing. He says to, uh, to Moses, go on up. To the land, um, to the land that I promised. So he goes back and he says, by the way, he he says this, take your people. He still is um, separated from his people. Take your people, not my people, your people. And then what does he say? Um, To the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is exactly what Moses asked him. Moses said, or Moses said, you made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You understand? God's going to fulfill that commitment. All right? Secondly, I'm going to send an angel to guide you. Uh, Third, I will drive out your enemies and he lists them I'm not going to put them all here but he's going to drive out your enemies and fourthly it's going to be a good land it's exactly what I promised you it's flowing with milk and honey okay God's going to honor his promises he's going to do exactly what he said people are going to get everything they wanted, except for one thing. What are they going to be missing? His presence. They do not get, um, basically, God says, he or I will not go with you. Actually, he doesn't even say not go with you. He will not go among you. Now, I wonder... If you took, and I'm not speaking of any particular person, but if you took a a person who claimed to be a believer, maybe somebody who's been in church a long time, um, maybe someone who does know the Lord, and you said, look, uh, God's gonna honor His promises. He's going to uh, fight your enemies. He's gonna give you all sorts of good things. Uh, Your life is gonna be great um, you're gonna have all of these things that have been promised, uh, but, but I'm not with you. How many people would take, that, take that, that deal? You're gonna have a great life. I mean, we have a whole prosperity gospel that goes on, right? You, know, you can get all of this stuff from God, um, but what is missing is God himself. And I've heard it said that oftentimes as Christians we're practicing atheists. We go through life, we don't spend time with God, we don't read our Bible, we don't spend time in prayer, and, and yet we are Christians, we claim to be Christians, and we kind of live our life without God's guidance and without God's leading and without God's presence. Now, fortunately for us, we have promises of God's presence, right? You guys can tell them to me. What does God promise about his Holy Spirit? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, for lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. The Holy Spirit is the the down payment, the earnest, the pledge of God's presence. So we don't have to worry about God's presence being removed from us, but our actions can cause it so that his presence is virtually undetectable in our lives. What else can we do? We can quench the Holy Spirit we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Hebrews tells us that our sin can cause us to harden our hearts so that we no longer hear his voice. And there's a lot of people, I think, who find themselves at least at part of the time in their life where the fact that God's presence seems to be missing doesn't make any difference at all. Life's going along okay. Got plenty of money, we've got plenty of food, family seems to be fine, everything's going good, I'm kind of on autopilot, but but God's presence is missing. And how did the people respond to that? This is where we actually now learn something from the Israelites. What was the Israelites' response to this promise? You get all of this, but I will not go with you. What did they call it? It was a disastrous word. We just talked about Hurricane Irma coming through. That's a disaster, right? A disaster isn't a little minor inconvenience. A disaster is when your house isn't there tomorrow or where you can't find your family or all of this stuff. This is disastrous. And what do they do as a result? They mourn and they strip off their ornaments. Now. not exactly sure what stripping off their ornaments means, but there's uh, a kind of an idea that goes with it that the ornaments actually tie them to the pagan religions. In other words, they're actually putting off the gods. You may remember the story where, you can look this up afterwards, but um, where Jacob, his family, the boys, uh, Dinah is raped, and so they kill all the people in that town. And then Jacob kind of pulls the family out because they're odious to the people around them. And he builds an, builds an altar and he tells the family, strip off all of the ornaments, the things that they plundered, take off all of those ornaments and, um, and put them away and bury them because we can't worship God with those ornaments on. Um, most of those ornaments, the earrings, the bracelets, all of those things usually had pictures of the foreign gods in them. And that's where Israel would have gotten their ornaments from. They were slaves. They didn't have gold. They would have gotten their jewelry from the Egyptians, plundered the Egyptians. They're being asked to take that all off. Um, but the, the implication, even if that's not quite exactly right, is that this is mourning and repentance for their sins. They are mourning their sin, and they are repenting. And it says they do that from Mount Horeb onward. So I think that Mm -hmm. this, what they did here, being convinced that God would not go up among them, is something that we should take to heart as well. Is the presence of God important to us? Or are we willing to live our lives where the presence of God is... If he's there, that's great, and if not, okay. Let me look at, let's look at a few verses, and then I'll give uh, time for uh, some comments. Uh, Go to Philippians chapter one. I I just pulled out a few verses. This is not exhaustive. There's hundreds of verses in the Bible that speak of the importance of knowing God, um, seeking God, having God's presence among us, uh, look at Philippians 1 verse 23. Um, Paul says, "I am hard pressed between the two choosing between living or dying. My desire is to be, to be to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Our goal is to be with our Savior. Go to Philippians three at the end of the book, Paul makes it very clear what he's talking about says, and you all know these verses, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All of this, Paul would count as loss so that he could have this, and that's what the people are doing. Um, For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him to to have what Moses is asking for. Teach me your ways that I may know you. Um, John 17, verse 3, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus asks that God would give eternal life to all who God has given to him, and then he tells us what that is. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Um, We're promised eternal life. What does that mean? It means means that we get to know God. Uh, We know him. Go to Psalm 42, a couple of verses. David speaks of this often in the Psalms, and we could have pulled out many more verses than this. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Um, Jump over since we're in Psalm to Psalm 63 and verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And Paul, Paul, David will talk about desiring to go to the house of the Lord to be in the presence of the Lord. So my question for myself and for everybody is, when God gives us all of these things, is this still the most important? Because doesn't God say that to the Israelites when you go into the land? Everything's gonna be going really well. And what's gonna happen? You're gonna forget me. Because we get seduced by what the world has to offer and forget that all that the world has to offer totally pales in comparison with knowing Christ and knowing God. And that is, the, that is what we are created for and that is the only thing that really brings satisfaction. So let me stop and give chance for comments if there, if there are any. I know it's pretty heavy there, but it's I think it's really important. Um, Paul tells
1: us in Ephesians also that in Ephesians one where he talks about we're we called and we're before the foundation of the world, the implication of all of that is that the that, that we'll be standing before the glory of God, send through Jesus Christ. Yeah. The implication is the greatest thrill that we can ever have is to stand in the glory of God.
0: Yeah. Uh well the, yeah to, to worship God and to worship him in heaven will be something that we can't even begin to comprehend at this point to, to know him um, and speak to him as Moses did as a friend face to face any other thoughts yeah surely. did they have a choice
2: I mean at that time I mean if they truly had repented did they have a choice?
0: Well, I think that's what they did. They, by stripping off their ornaments and by repenting, they basically said, this is more important to us than this here. Because that we could have, this passage could be read entirely different. You could have had Moses say that and the people say, we'll take that deal. Sure, we wanna to get to the promised land. Look, he's gonna drive out our enemies, he's gonna lead us there, he's gonna fulfill his promise and it's a good land. Why not do it? But their response is to mourn and to take off their ornaments. And I think you see true repentance at this point, national repentance on this part. And then God is going to renew the covenant. Um, What Moses does is he goes and he's gonna uh, uh, intercede that God go with them. But it's interesting, God says, I won't go with you because I would end up destroying you because you're stiff-necked people. But now that they've repented, they are softened, God says, I will go up among you. So, Rod. I mean, the, temple has not been built. the tabernacle has not been built. And so,
1: when you were talking about the, how God gave the instructions to build the temple before He gave the Ten Commandments, you, you made the statement that He was providing a way of reconciliation to man before He even gave him
0: the law. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I don't know if He gave. I don't know what order it was given us, but He gives the law and He gives the way back to God at the at the same time on top of the mountain. Yes. And at this point, they don't know that because they haven't heard what Moses has to say. But there is a plan. That's why I'm saying I don't believe that every one of them is blotted out of his book of life. I think they repent and there are many who are we're going to see in heaven. I could be wrong on that, but I, I, just, I, I think that there was forgiveness that was offered to people. Otherwise, there's no point in the tabernacle to have the tabernacle. Now, there's one last thing And I have to admit, when I first read through Exodus 33, it was like, what is this stupid little passage in here? That's a terrible thing to say. About the tent. why is that in there? But this is actually really powerful. When Moses apparently comes, we don't know what the time frame is. We don't know when he's done any of this stuff. We know there was a 40-day period, we were told, before he even confronts the people in Deuteronomy 9. Um, So Moses takes... And he sets up a tent outside of the camp, and it says far outside of the camp. And that's where God meets with Moses. Do you understand the symbolism here? You want to meet with God? Where do you go? Outside the camp. I will not dwell among you. The people, I think, have actually been watching this. When Moses wants to meet with God, he cannot meet with God amongst the people because God will not be there. He sets up a tent and he has to go way outside. And he walks out to this tent that's far off and the cloud comes and God beats with with Moses and Moses speaks with God. And then Moses comes back to the people. The very visual, I am here, but I'm not with you. You have cut yourself off from me because of your sin." Um, and then it talks about if you wanted to meet with God, I don't think you actually went into the temple. I think you went out, talked with Moses, Moses talked with God. But the only way to meet with God was to go outside of the camp. And and then um, it says that Joshua stayed there, which is interesting. So somebody was always at that, at that. Um, But that's gotta be a devastating thing. Our God will not even be with us. He's outside of the camp. And so that was this same picture. I'll be around, but I'm not going with you. I will not go up among you. Um, Interesting sort of parallel, uh, Jesus was crucified outside of the city. Uh, If you want salvation, you have to go outside of the camp in a sense. You have to move out from where it's sinful and go to where God is. And that was a big deal to the Israelites that in Hebrews, that's the point of Hebrews. There's something better, but you have to go outside of, of, of the camp to get to Jesus. So, um, but I think that tent of meeting part is really important. It's the visual image of what is happening. Uh, but for us, I wanna come back to this because I wanna end with this. God's given you all sorts of things. Are they more important than his presence? If it is, then you need to repent and you need to mourn. You need to take off your ornaments and you have to say, God, my priorities are are wrong. The people of Israel recognized better than I do these sinful people, how important it was for God's presence to be not just there but manifest and and active in our lives. And um, that's convicting for me. Because as I go through my life, you know, like I said, we kind of go on autopilot. I've got stuff I'm doing, and, and sometimes you look and you see that, you know, maybe I've pulled God off, and he's not, the, he's not my focus. Everything else is that's going on. So any comments or questions before we finish? <laughs> what is Aaron's tension in all of this? I think he's just sitting over there embarrassed, but I don't know. <laughs> Um, he is going to be the high priest yeah, I mean, because God chose him.
1: Point, time,
0: right. Yeah, he will. When the tam- tabernacle is built, he will, he will be representing the people. Uh, God chooses unworthy vessels and makes them... Well, he better choose unworthy vessels or none of us would have been chosen. So um, Aaron has a lot of flaws, but he's still the high priest. So... Any other comments before we end? Becky. I, I agree that the, the real torture for Jesus was not the physical pain, which is what we focus on sometimes, but the uh, separation from God, <laughs> to be separated from his Father.
2: So
0: why they were mourning, they understood. Yeah. And what's interesting is this, um, I had said at the beginning that I go back to Genesis. This to me is like the picture of, of Genesis, the people of sin. And now the only place to meet God is outside the camp. It's like, uh, the God, in a sense, the, the Garden of Eden was where they had been with God, and now they're forced out of the Garden of Eden. It's an opposite picture, but they're outside the Garden of Eden with the the, the this cherubim with the flaming swords. Why? They can't get back to God. Something has to happen. Here the people are in the camp, and God is out there, and you can't... You, 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 the, the, he's separated from the people, um, although it says they could go and meet with Him if they went outside the, the camp. But that there's a very similar picture there of God separating himself because of the sin of the, the people. so. But I, that, I think you're exactly right. The, the picture here is when, when man and God are separated, that should be the thing that uh, is the most important. And that's where even though we have promises that he will go up among us, oftentimes we don't consider that important enough to, to make it our first priority. I see the same
2: picture of Moses being a type of Jesus as well. Moses seems to know that he needs to intercede for the people.
0: I think it says they mourned. Yeah, you it says they mourned and they stripped their ornaments. Right. So there was been... mourning. Whether it was mourning for the right reason, we don't know. Right. So yeah. they
2: know that God has left their status ambiguous and that Moses is in that context that Moses is interceding. Yeah. And basically saying, hey, they are good people. Um, and I just think I see like, great
0: love in there. Yeah. And and that that's actually a different take on why Moses says blot me out is that he is identifying with his people, and loving his people the the way that Christ loved us and was willing to be separated from God for us. That that might be a better take on what Moses did there. So thank you, Kirk. Anything else that we need to mention why before we're done? The, the was was that?
1: Why did they build the golden calf because they wanted a the leader, something to worship? Yeah. And they realized that God was no longer with them. Yeah. Well,
0: scared the difference out of them. Yep. Yeah. Although it, it's interesting because he said, I'll, I'll send somebody to guide you. Uh, somebody will go before you. It's just not going to be me. So, yeah. Andy. I had an
2: interesting comment uh, on verse 7 It says, And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, which you mentioned. Yeah. the nation found favor with God, and now it's as if God is saying, if you if you will actually leave yourself, leave your people, and come to me alone, then I will, you know, then I'll forgive you. Yeah. And it's a great picture of that, of that relationship between man
0: and God. Yeah. What's, what's interesting, too, is that when Moses walks out there, it says they all stood, while he's at the tent, they're all standing there worshiping. So... That their hearts, I do think the intent is that their hearts have been turned back to God, and now God's going to renew the covenant. This is a this is a time of national repentance and mourning. That's another thing we could pray for: national repentance and mourning for our nation and for our own sin. So, all right, let's close in prayer.